to grab your uh, Bible or copy of God's Word uh, and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. This morning we're starting a new series uh, called The Prince of the Kingdom of God. Really since the fall of humanity all the way back in the garden, uh, humanity has been looking for a savior. Sometimes we've turned to look for politicians and governments to save us. Some of us look to education and entertainment to distract us. Uh, we've looked to institutions and individuals for centuries and centuries to save us from our sin and to save us and to bring order into the chaos of our world. The only problem is, is that none of those things ever have saved. None of those things can deliver us from the chaos of our sin and the chaos of this world. But there is one who can, and his name is Jesus. And what we're celebrating at Christmas is his incarnation, when God the Son clothed himself in humanity and entered into our world in the form of a little baby boy. And in this series, we're going to learn about Jesus. It's going to be all about him, as it always is. And we're going to learn about him based on this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. This is going to be our, our focus text for the next few weeks. Now, our text this morning is going to be Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and it's going to be the first half. So if you would and if you're able, would you stand with me in honor of God's word as I read our passage for this morning? Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to read verse 6 and 7. Uh, just to give us a little bit more context. The word of the Lord says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thanks, you may be seated. The title of our sermon this morning is that the prince is God's son. This week has been a big week for me. I'm a big soccer fan, and as many of you may know, many of you may not know at all, uh, the World Cup began this week. It's something that happens every four years. The nations of the world play in uh, their, their own continents. They play tournaments to, to decide who's going to qualify for the World Cup. The World Cup is the biggest stage in soccer uh, and and on, on Monday morning, I was watching uh, England play. And it caught me by surprise. The, the, the players came walking out of the tunnel. You know, they line up. just playing the theme song. Everybody's real hyped. And the players go to, to sing their national anthem. And it caught me by surprise because the new title of the, the national anthem of the United Kingdom, really, is God Save the King. And it caught me by surprise because for my entire life and for Many of us in this room, for our entire lives, the national anthem of the United Kingdom has been God Save the Queen. Uh, but as many of you know, the Queen, Queen Elizabeth passed away earlier this year. And uh, when she passed away, there was a new king. And Charles III became king via a proclamation. I want to read to you this proclamation because uh, I thought it was, it was interesting. It says this, this is from uh, the, the governing body in the United Kingdom. We do now hereby with one voice and consent of tongue and heart publish and proclaim that the Prince Charles Philip Arthur George, great name, Charles Philip Arthur George, is now by the death of our late sovereign of happy memory, our only lawful and rightful liege, Lord Charles III. So by that proclamation, the king, or sorry, rather the prince, became the king. And King Charles III is now the proclaimed king of England. And all throughout the United Kingdom and all throughout other territories that, uh, that vow allegiance to the United Kingdom, a similar proclamation was made. You know, this prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 9, in Jesus' time, was considered a prophecy. 
But for those of us today on this side of his coming, we can look back at Isaiah 9 and say, that's not just a prophecy, that is a proclamation. It's a proclamation that the king has arrived. And what we're going to talk about this morning is what his incarnation proclaims to us, that it proclaims that God's grace is, 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 is to us, that his presence is with us, and that his authority is over us. So if you're taking notes this morning, I would encourage you to make a note of this first, that Jesus' birth proclaims God's grace to us. Jesus' birth proclaims God's grace to us. My wife, Holly, is pregnant uh, with our first child. I'm so excited about that. That's gonna be, it's gonna be so fun. Uh, we're, we're really pumped about that. It's a, a good gift from a good God. And we're so thankful for him and uh, we're thankful for what God has done. And I'm excited uh, about that. I have no idea what I'm doing as a parent, which I think is appropriate for not being one. Uh, so if, if you have any tips, I'm willing to take any of them, uh, even if they're not so good. But uh, I, I'm so grateful for the gift that God has given us. And I'm, you know, I like any parents, like any good parent does, they think that their child is, is the greatest. They've hung the sun and the moon and the stars and all those sorts of things. Uh, but I recognize that my son will be a very ordinary son compared to this child that has been promised and the child that has come. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah wrote, for to us a child is born. This is a big deal in the Christian faith that a child has been born to us. If you're not very familiar with the Bible or you've never heard the whole story of the Bible, you've never had the pieces of the Bible connected together, this may seem like a rather odd statement for us to pick out, but this is actually a, a wonderful promise. It's an, it's an extension of a promise that was made all the way back in Genesis chapter three. See, in the very beginning, when God made the world, he created everything and everything was perfect. In God's words, it was good. He created and he said, it is good. God made Adam and Eve. He placed them in the garden. There was harmony among creation. It's hard for us to think about that now because the world that we live in today is so far removed from harmony and it's much more likely to be described as chaos than harmony. But back in the beginning, there was harmony. There was harmony between Adam and Eve. They were, they were good. There was no relational conflict. There was harmony between Adam and Eve and creation. They had food abundance of food and they didn't have to work very hard to labor and pain to, to provide food. But most importantly, and most significantly, there was harmony between Adam and Eve and God. They enjoyed the, the fellowship with God. They had all that they could ever have wanted. Everything was harmonious. But then something very terrible happened. Adam and Eve, as we all know, they made a choice and they made a choice to sin. And what Adam and Eve did in its essence is they believed the great lie of sin. When I think about what the lie of sin is, every sin can be boiled down to the same truth that, that there is a, it's a belief in us that there is something that is more satisfying, something that is greater to us than God is. Adam and Eve were tempted to buy the lie of sin, that if they ate the fruit and stepped outside of what God had said, that they could be like God. And they, they, they were deceived by that lie, they believed that lie, and they took and they ate the fruit. And that harmony that was enjoyed was completely shattered. Adam, when God came and asked what's going on, he blamed Eve. He actually blamed God for giving him Eve. I was thinking about that. That was probably the first instance of uh, conflict between a husband and wife after they left the garden. I can only imagine Eve looking at Adam saying, dude, come on, why'd you do that? But that harmony, that relational harmony that was enjoyed, broken. That harmony between Adam and Eve, humanity and creation, broken. Eve, her pain was going to be multiplied in childbearing. 
Adam, he was going to have to work and labor and pain and toil and sweat to provide for his family, produce food from the ground. But most importantly and significantly, Adam and Eve, their harmony with God was broken. That harmony, that, that fellowship with which they enjoyed with God was now broken. Adam and Eve, because of their sin, because of the holiness of God, they were removed. And God was giving out the consequences. You know, Adam and Eve made that choice to believe the lie of sin. And I'm always reminded, and I think it's appropriate, anytime we come to remember the beginning of the story, that there are many of us that are making that exact same choice today. There's many of us that are making the choice to believe the lie of sin, that there is something or someone that is more satisfying to us, that can do more for us, that can bless us, that knows what's best for us other than God. And for many of us, we've made ourselves the king. We've tried to be God. We've tried to play God. And we've made a major mess of things. When we choose the lie of sin, we destroy our lives. We destroy our relationships. And we destroy the lives of other people. There's some of you in the room today who are making that conscious choice to choose the lie of sin and you are destroying your life and others. There are others of you who are bearing the consequences of somebody else's choice to believe the lie of sin and you are suffering. Sin always has consequences. And it's appropriate for us every time we come to this story to be sober-minded to realize that sin always takes us further than we wanna go, it costs us more than we wanna pay, and it delivers far, far, far less than it promises. The fleeting pleasure of sin is never worth what it costs to have it. Adam and Eve made a choice and we are making the same choice and they suffered the consequences for their sin. And as God was handing out the consequences for their sin in a just way, God made a promise. And this promise was an act of grace. I wanna be very clear to remind us that Genesis 3.15 is an act of grace, something completely and totally undeserved by for humanity, but God in his goodness gave grace. Here's what Genesis 3.15 says. It says, this is the Lord God speaking to the serpent. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This right here is what's been known as the Proto-Evangelium. Uh, it's a fancy way of saying this is the first gospel. This is the first bit of good news of what God had promised to do. Again, this promise here in Genesis 3.15 is nothing other than an act of grace. Humanity, Adam and Eve, did not deserve God's promise here. Because what God had promised was to send an offspring, an offspring of the woman, a human child, and this human child would undo the work of the devil. The, the devil who had tempted them with the lie of sin, there was gonna be one who was gonna come and undo what the devil did and restore that harmony that previously existed between God and humanity, between humanity and creation, between humanity, humanity and humanity. There was an offspring, a child that was coming. And again, this is entirely an act of grace. And at the center of this promise of grace is a promised child. And it's not just any promised child. He's a human being like us, not an angel, not a spirit. He's a promised child, an offspring of the woman. And what God does from this point in Genesis 3.15 on is he begins to narrow the funnel down so that we don't miss it. He begins to tell us it's not just any human child, an offspring of the woman, but it's going to be a child in the, in, in the race of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three tells us that, that Israel was God's chosen people. And through Israel, God was gonna bless the whole world. So we know that it's gonna be an offspring of the woman, but it's also gonna come from the, the race of Israel. Narrowed down a little bit further, God tells us in Genesis 49, 10, 
not only from the tribe of Abraham, uh, from the family of Abraham, but from the tribe of Judah. Narrow down a little bit more. We're told from the tribe of Judah, he's going to be in the line, in the family, the lineage of King David, 2 Samuel 7, 12. We're even told the specifics of where this child would be born. Micah 5, 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. We're told how he would be born via a virgin birth, Isaiah 7, 14. And we're even told what he would be born to do, Isaiah 53, born to live, live to die, die to rise, rise to reign. We, we, we know everything because God has narrowed this funnel down. And when we get to Matthew chapter one and Luke chapter two, this is what we read. Matthew chapter one, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, just before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. An answer to Isaiah 7, 14. Verse 21, she'll bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus for he'll save his people from their sins. Isaiah 53. Luke chapter two picks up the story. Joseph went from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. There's Micah 5, 2. Because he is of the house and the lineage of David. To be of the house of lineage of David means that he was also a family member of the tribe of Judah, which is also a belonging to the, the race of Abraham. That's Genesis 12, 1, and 3, 1 through 3, Genesis 49, and 2 Samuel 7. And he was going to Bethlehem to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. All of those Old Testament prophecies falling down and Luke chapter one, I'm sorry, Luke chapter two and Matthew chapter one are meant to point us to one singular unmistakable conclusion that, the God, that God's promised grace has come, that the grace of God is, is now here. I wanna encourage you to remember what grace is. If you've never written this down before, this would be a great time to write down a definition for grace. The grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Contrasted with mercy, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. And when I think of grace, I think of a story that I heard, uh, that I read about in a book from one of my professors at seminary, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones. He tells the story of his family, how they adopted a little girl. This little girl was eight years old when they brought her into her family, uh, brought her into their family. And she had been with another family previously, had caused some trouble, there were some issues going on, but they decided we were gonna bring this child into our family. And when, uh, as Dr. Jones was getting to know her better, he realized and learned that this girl's dream was to go to Disney World. And that something had happened with her previous family, uh, that their family went to Disney World and they took their biological children, but they decided not to take her. For whatever reason, they decided to leave her at home. So Dr. Jones made her promise and said, I'll, I'll take you to Disney World. We'll go as a family and we'll go together. It's a little girl's dream to be at Disney World. And he tells a story about how about a month out from them going to Disney World, their family had the most chaos as, as they had ever had. Uh, this little girl that they had just adopted began to really lash out. She began to lie. She began to be really, really mean and hateful toward her sisters. She began to steal food. Instead, all she had to do was just ask, but she began to steal and hide and she was lashing out. And come to find out, uh, the, the little girl had been left behind. Dr. Jones said, you know, even though this little girl doesn't deserve to go to Disney World because of what she's done, I made a promise to her. And he told her, I made a promise to you, so I'm going to take you. 
And so they go, they go to Disney World, they spend a day in Magic Kingdom. It's a great day. They come home and right before they go to bed, Dr. Jones asked her, how was your first day? And she said this, she said, daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That's what grace is. And I'm mindful as we're reading Genesis 3.15 that Genesis 3.15 is an act entirely of grace. Adam and Eve absolutely did not deserve grace. And as a matter of fact, none of us do either. That's what makes grace grace, that it's undeserved. We don't deserve it, yet God gives it to us anyway. And that's exactly what the birth of Christ proclaims to us. We talked earlier about how in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the serpent undid the harmony that was created by God. And how this this promised offspring was going to come and undo the work of the devil and restore the harmony between God and humanity. Here's what John wrote about what Jesus came into the world to do. He said, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to undo what was done that we might have harmony with God. And I want to encourage us always to remember that it's not because we are good that we get grace, but it's because God is good. We don't get grace because we deserve it or because we've earned it or even because we've ever been good or ever could be good. We get it because God is good. And what Christ has done in his incarnation, what he proclaims to us is that God's grace is to us. That God has been faithful to keep his promise. His promised grace has arrived. So I wanna encourage you, anytime you hear about the promise of Christ come, uh, coming at Christmas, anytime you talk about how Jesus is the reason for the season and all of those sorts of things, to think about Jesus in this way, that Jesus is the grace of God with us. That's what he is. He is the grace of God with us and his birth proclaims God's grace has come. So that's the first truth it proclaims. Secondly, it proclaims God's presence with us. It proclaims God's presence with us. Isaiah 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born. Talk there about the humanity of Jesus. And to us a son is given. What we're going to talk about in that second clause is the divinity of Jesus. Because just like he was no ordinary child, he's also no ordinary son. He is not just a son, he is the son. He is the eternally begotten son, the second person of the Trinity. I'm in seminary right now. I'm only uh, three classes away from finishing. I'm so excited for that. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do with all my time, but it's going to be great, whatever it is. Uh, But I'm only three classes away from finishing. One of the classes that I'll finish up actually today uh, is a class on world religions. And it's been really interesting studying different religions of the world and, and thinking about it through the lens of what does an outsider see versus an insider so we, we were talking about at class the other day, I went with Pastor Clay, went out to Louisville for class, and we were talking about uh, Hinduism and how from the outsider's perspective, you know, from our perspective, we would look at Hinduism and say, that's a, a polytheistic religion. It's a religion of many gods. But how on the inside, as a Hindu, a Hindu would say, no, it's not polytheism, it's monotheism. We only worship one God. And as I was thinking about our sermon this morning and thinking about that story, I couldn't help but to think and to know that there are many people, maybe even some in this room, who have a difficult time understanding uh, what the God of the Bible is like. Is he a God who is three gods? Is he, uh, where did the son come from? How, How does father and son relate? Was it that God had a relationship with a human and they produced Christ? Who or what is the Holy Spirit? We have these big questions about God. 
And we don't have time to dig all the way into the depths of the, the doctrine of the Trinity today. Uh, I, we don't have sufficient time for that. But what we can do today is we can remind ourselves of what we do believe about God. These are things written in our articles of faith. But I want to share them with you because I think these will be really helpful for us in understanding who the Son, Jesus the Son, is. Here's what our articles of faith say. It says that we believe in one God who exists eternally in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three persons are equal in divinity, glory, and authority, and yet each has personal attributes and distinct functions. I want to break that down into four very simple, well, rather simple uh, terms for us to understand. The first is that we believe in one God, which means that we believe in one God. There's one God. He is one in his essence, one in his being. He is unified in his purpose. He is one God who exists eternally in three persons. And what that means is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have always existed. That word eternally is very, very key for us to understand. And it's very key, especially when it comes to the, the doctrine of the Son. Because if Jesus were a created being, then Jesus would not be God. And if Jesus were not God, there would be no redemption in his blood. So it's really key for us to understand and to affirm that, that Jesus is always an eternal, he has always been an eternal being. John 1 tells us that. In the beginning was the word. And he was in the beginning with God. He has always been. At the same time, we believe that there are three persons who are equal in divinity, authority, and glory. In other words, there's no hierarchy in the Trinity. And so it's not as if God the Father is up here and then there's a step below where God the Son is and then somewhere off over here in the ethereal realm is the Holy Spirit. It's, they, are, they are equal in divinity, meaning that all three are God. They're equal in authority, meaning that each of them carries the same authority and they are equal in glory. No one person of the Godhead is more important or less important than another. And they're all equal and uh, it's very important that we understand that each person in the Trinity, though equal, are distinct. So that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. There's a very helpful illustration I want to put up here that, that may help us to understand this. There, there's lots of different illustrations and metaphors and analogies that people would try to use, and all of them fail. And all of them fail because this is a mystery of God. But what we do know in the Bible is that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons who are equal in majesty and equal in glory. This is a core truth of the Christian faith. This is something that distinguishes our faith from every other faith. And even the best and the brightest minds can't wrap their mind fully around the Trinity. How does this work? To be quite honest with you, I'm not entirely sure. But these are the truths that the Bible teaches. But even though we, we can't wrap our mind around those things, I want to encourage us to be encouraged by that. It's a good thing that we can't put God in a box. I believe it's a good thing. Because if I could put God in a box where I can understand everything about God and he is just like the way that I want him to be, Tim Keller has a famous quote and he says, if, if your God never does anything that you don't agree with, then could it be that your God is not actually a God, but he's just an idealized version of yourself? If I could wrap my mind around God, that makes, that makes me God. But the fact of the matter is I can't wrap my mind around God. I, I know the truths that have been provided to me in his word that help me to understand as best as I can. But our God is far bigger, far more glorious than we can ever imagine. 
And though that's difficult for us to, like I said, wrap our minds around, what we can be sure of is what has been revealed to us in his word. And what has been revealed to us in his word about the son is what we read in Matthew chapter one, verse 21, that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Think about that for just a moment. Think about being Mary and Joseph holding the baby Jesus, thinking about this is the one who hung the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky. And he knows each of them by name and he sustains all of them. This is the the one who is the exact imprint of of God. He, He reveals his nature to us. This is the one by whom and for whom all things are created and in whom all things hold together. Think about the the glory and the majesty of what it might've been like to hold the baby Jesus. We we can't wrap our minds around the the full nature of God, but what we can be 100% sure of because God has told it to us is that Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel. And what that means is that the son of the father has stepped into our world as our brother to bring light into our darkness. Jesus the Lord is light and life and love. And what his birth proclaims to us is that light and life and love have come. They have come into the world. Jesus clothed himself in human flesh. The God who existed outside of time and space wrapped himself in human flesh to enter onto the grand stage of human history to step into our pit, step into our mess, to step into our brokenness, to provide light and life and love so that death and darkness and and disconnection no longer have to be the final reality for us but that we can have light and life and love and we can enjoy it with the God of light and life and love eternal. That's what Christmas proclaims to us. That's what the birth of Christ proclaims to us. So for those who are lost in darkness, Jesus is Emmanuel. Be encouraged. He's the light of the world and he will lead us in the path to everlasting life. For those who are stuck in darkness, Jesus is Emmanuel. Be encouraged. He gave his life for us. He's not just the son that was given, but he's the son that was given for us. He gave his life that you and I might have new life in this life and eternal life with him forever. Be encouraged for those who are disconnected from God's love. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is the love of God displayed for us. Again, Christ's arrival on this grand stage of humanity is a proclamation that death, darkness, and disconnection are no longer our only options, but that in Christ we have light, life, and love, and we can have it eternal because Jesus is Emmanuel, he is God with us. And though he is going back to heaven and one day we'll be reunited with him in person, he has sent his spirit who now dwells within us. We're gonna talk over the next few weeks, actually next week, how he is the wonderful counselor and how the Holy Spirit encourages and guides us and leads us uh, until that day comes. But that's the second promise that this proclaims that Jesus's birth proclaims that God's presence is with us. And then third and finally, Jesus' birth proclaims God's authority over us. It proclaims his authority over us. Verse six of Isaiah nine again, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. You know, this year we spent a lot of time talking about the kingdom of God. We started at the very beginning of the year talking about the, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. We're gonna finish this year talking about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. We've learned a lot. We've learned how to live as the kingdom people. We, we've learned about who the king is. And, and what we're gonna do now is we're gonna talk about, in this series, we're gonna talk about the prince of the kingdom of God. And if you remember, simply put, the kingdom of God by definition is the rule and the reign of Jesus. 
And so when we come to this passage, we recognize that the one upon whom the government and upon whom the kingdom of God will rest is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the king of the kingdom of God. I love what the apostle Paul wrote about Jesus in Philippians chapter two, starting in verse five, he wrote this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, this is a passage we typically share when we're talking about humility. And that's the proper context to understand what the Apostle Paul has said here. He's trying to draw our attention to the humility of Christ. But it's not just about humility because it's the story of the King of Kings, the one who was born to live, the one who lived to die, the one who died to rise, the one who is risen and now is reigning. This passage in Philippians 2 is the story of the King of Kings. And it's a story that's a much needed balm to calm our anxious hearts. I want to be very transparent with you because I think that's, that's important. I'm a person who's struggled for a long time in my life with anxiety. I struggle with anxiety and I, at this point, I understand where my anxiety comes from. I, I know the process to get to the root of it. But the root of anxiety is it's, it's one of two things and sometimes it's a combination of things. It's either a misbelief about myself or it's an unbelief about God. And what that reflects in is a disconnection between my formal belief, what I know and believe to be true here, and the way that I feel in my heart. There's a disconnection between what I know and the way that I'm living is another way to say it. And as I've been anxious, really specifically over these last two weeks, thinking about all the things in my life that are getting ready to change, a baby, seminary graduate, college ministry, things that are going on there, all these sorts of things that I really don't have any control over. And to be quite honest with you, that terrifies me. When I'm not in control, I get afraid. And I'm afraid because I'm not in control. And it's this endless, vicious cycle. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's not with that particular thing, but maybe there's something else that causes you a great amount of anxiety. But in my own life, it's been a result of those two things, a misbelief that if I'm not in control, then I can't, I can't make sure everything is good. But also an unbelief that God is as good as he says that he is. It's been one of those two things. And again, maybe you're in a similar spot with me. Maybe, you under, maybe you've felt that before. Maybe you feel that currently. And if that's you, then I want to just encourage you, uh, encourage us to, to share in this together. That even though I'm not in control, that Jesus is. And that Jesus is good. And what this prophecy, this promise, this proclamation in Isaiah chapter 9 proclaims to us is that God is in control. That Jesus has authority over all things. I want to read to you a couple of passages that talk about the authority that Christ has. First one is from Psalm chapter two. The psalmist writes, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse four, he who sits in heaven laughs. The kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth have nothing over the king of kings. Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. Matthew 8, 14 through 16. 
When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and immediately she began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him, to Jesus, many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits of the word and he healed all who were sick. If you haven't done so in a while, read through the gospel of Mark. Please, please read through the gospel of Mark and notice the immediacy with which Jesus has power over all things. Sin, gone. Death, new life. Sickness, healed. Demons, cast out. Storms, calmed. He has authority over all things. Anything that may plague us is under the authority of King Jesus. And most importantly, Jesus has authority over death and he has authority over hell. Revelation 1, 17 says this, do not be afraid. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. That's why we don't have to be afraid. And specifically because of this at the very end, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Our king, King Jesus, is the king who has all authority. Everything has been subjected to his feet. And one day, either willingly or by shame, everyone, every tongue on heaven and earth and under the earth will confess that he is the true Lord. He is the true king. There's none higher. There's none greater. There's none who holds authority like Jesus the king. And the reason that that's good news is is because we know the character of our king. See, a king who has all authority but is a bad king is a terrible thing. And a king who is a good king but has no authority is, is equally a terrible thing. But because we have a king who has all authority and because we have a king who we know what he's like gives us reason to be encouraged. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the character of the king, that he's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I hope that you'll be here for that. But I want to encourage you today with the very thing that we need to know first about our king. I told you that sometimes I, I fear, my anxiety, my fear is because I don't sometimes believe that Jesus is as good as his word says that he is. And my prayer is, God, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And what I have to do is remind myself of truths from his word. And it just so happens, just so happens, that I've been reading through the book of Exodus. I want chapter 33. I don't rarely ever read more than a chapter a day. And I read chapter 33 on Thursday. And chapter 33 is the story of, of Moses asking the Lord to show him his glory. This is right after the, the golden calf. Moses asks God, he says, God, please show me your glory. Do you remember what the Lord said that he would do for Moses? He, he said, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. When Moses asked to see God's glory, to see the essence and the weight of God's glory, how did God frame his glory to Moses? He said, I am good. And from that point forward, what God was teaching Moses and what he's teaching every single one of us is that we've got to understand that everything that God is doing and is by his goodness. From that point forward, everything that Moses knew about God was that God was good in whatever that he did. And it's echoed in Psalm 19, verse 68, if that's a, a verse that you've not memorized, I would encourage you to write it down and memorize it. The psalmist says, you are good and you do good, which means that God is, his character is good and that everything that God does is characterized by good. He is good and he does good. Even when we have a hard time understanding, even when we can't see it. And that's what gives our hearts a reason to be of good courage. That's what gives our hearts a reason not to be afraid. It's because we have a king who holds all authority and a king who is good. And we can trust him. 
And again, it's no coincidence that I read that passage on Thursday. And it's no coincidence that if you are also uh, wrestling with some of those thoughts, that you're here this morning. Because Jesus is a good king, and he has the highest authority, so you can trust him. Trust him for eternity, yes. But don't forget to trust him for your today and your tomorrow, too. So as we close out our time uh, in God's word this morning, we've talked about how God's grace, the birth of Christ has proclaimed God's grace to us, how it's proclaimed his presence with us, and it's how it's proclaimed his authority over us. I want to give us uh, three practical encouragements or challenges of what to do with what we've heard this morning. And the first one is this, receive God's gift of grace. We've talked about in Genesis 3.15 that it was an act of grace We see in Isaiah 9 that this is an act of grace. We see in Matthew 1 and Luke 2 that it's an act of grace. We see all throughout the pages of Scripture that our salvation is an act of grace, by grace, through faith in Christ alone. So if you resonated with those words of darkness and death and disconnection, I want to encourage you to receive the gift of grace that God has provided for us in Christ. There is no other way to find light and life and love than in Christ Jesus He died that you and I might have that. So if you're here this morning and that's what the Holy Spirit is leading you to make a profession of faith, don't harden your heart. Today's the day of salvation. Christ has died and Christ has risen. Give your life to Christ. Receive his grace. Secondly, I want to encourage you to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. I want to encourage you to make a conscious effort each and every day, especially during this Christmas season, especially during this season to delight yourself in the reality that God has come to us. That he didn't expect us to pick ourselves up off the ash heap and to climb our way to God, but that he came to us, that he might step into our pit to rescue us and bring us back to him. Celebrate the wonderful reality that Emmanuel is God with us. And also that he hasn't left you. Even though he's gone back to heaven, he sent you his spirit who's working within you. Very God of God is now living, dwelling, leading, guiding, us until he brings us home and then third and finally trust the king of kings we talked about how he holds the keys to all things including death and hades there's nothing for us as a believer that we have to fear if god allows it then it's something that's necessary and if he withholds it it must not be needed but we can trust him even in those things because we know that either way whether he gives or withholds or even takes that he is good and he is always a very present help in times of trouble. If there's something that you'd like to talk about, we're going to have some care leaders up front. If you're one of our care leaders, would you, would you mind to come down? We're going to sing another song uh, here in just a minute about our king and how he's come. And I want to encourage you, if, if you need to talk to somebody or if you want to pray with somebody, uh, please come speak to one of these care leaders. I would love to talk to you. I'll be sitting right over here. But I, again, I, I just want to encourage you. This is, this is a wonderful time of year for Christians. It's a lot of time. It's a fun time because we're with family and friends and celebrating all kinds of good things. Don't forget to celebrate Emmanuel, that Jesus is God with us. And because he is here, it's a proclamation of grace, presence, and his authority over us. He's a good king and he is worthy of our worship. So let's pray and then we'll sing another song to praise him after that. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you tell us what kind of king you are, that you are a good king and that you give us every reason to trust you. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, you, you didn't count equality in heaven. You didn't use that as a, as a thing to leverage over us, but that you willingly gave up your life that we might have new life. 
that you stepped into time and space, into our mess, into our brokenness, to bring light and life and love to us, people who are far from it. And we proclaim to you, Lord, that it's not because we've earned it that we get your grace, but because you're good and you give it to us. And the reason you continue to give us grace is not because we earned it, but because we're yours. And so God, we pray that you would continue to give us grace to trust you as the King of Kings, the one who holds all authority. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to celebrate you as Emmanuel, the God who has come to us, and that we would continue to receive your grace upon grace. You tell us in your word that your grace is sufficient. It saves us, it sustains us, and it will keep us all the way home. And so, Lord, until then, help us to to worship you. Help us to live in obedience to you. Help us to praise you for you alone are worthy. We thank you for these things. And we ask that you continue to do these things and works in our lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.